welcome to the 10th episode of the Roots to STEM podcast, a podcast where we talk to scientists about the paths they've taken to get where they are today and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Steph Katie, here with my co-host, Maggie Warren. Hi, everybody. This week, we're talking to Nia Walker, a PhD student at Stanford's Hopkins Marine Station down in Monterey. Nia has been interested in marine science ever since she was a kid and would go snorkeling all by herself on family vacations. Nia's love of marine science continued on throughout college, a gap year working at the Maritime Aquarium in Connecticut, and up to now, where she studies coral stress tolerance with Steve Palumbi. In this episode, we talk about all sorts of things, including how to identify a good mentorship network, the importance of prioritizing mental health, and how creating one's own definition of success can help us not compare ourselves to others as much and in turn will lead to greater satisfaction and just feeling happier. We had a couple small audio issues, so please bear that in mind when listening, but all of Nia's awesome insights and advice still come through anyways. So please join us in welcoming Nia Walker to the Roots to STEM podcast. Nia, welcome to the Roots to STEM podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. Okay, so let's get started with just, can you tell us who you are, what your job or position is, and what your research is about? Yeah, um, so I'm a fourth year PhD candidate in uh, Steve Palumbi's lab, which is in the biology department at Stanford University. Um, And I study coral bleaching resistance and recovery. And um, generally, I'm just interested in understanding, uh, like, what are the trade-offs that are associated with um, different mechanisms of um, uh, temperature resilience? And also, uh, can we then take that information and apply it to conservation, like policy initiatives, like selective breeding or prioritizing uh, certain reefs and things like that? Mm, Very cool. cool. So can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to be you to be like a marine biologist to work at Hopkins like what does a day in the life of Nia Walker look like oh man yeah so the first three years of my PhD were very different than like COVID times yeah (laughs) yeah so two separate days I guess (laughs) normal life and COVID life (laughs) um so one of the things I was really excited to do in my PhD was field research um because I I like studied corals in undergrad but they were like frozen samples from like Mm. 10 years prior, like in the, like the back of a minus 80 freezer. So I didn't even like, I was really into corals, but didn't have any like direct like association with like what they look like in the wild. And like, yeah, I mean, I've been to Reese before, but not studied them. And so when I first arrived at Stanford, uh, like the summer before my PhD, I got to go to Palau, um, which is a country in the Philippines or near the Philippines Mm. in the Indo-Pacific. And that was really cool. Um, We were like snorkeling like from 8 a.m. until 3 p.m. every day and then like processing samples. And it was just like very tiring and hands on. Um, And yeah, so at this point, I've been to Palau seven or eight times. So like at one point I was spending about a quarter of my year, uh, like each of my first few years in Palau. Yeah. How long does it take to get to Palau? Like, how do you get there? Yeah, so we it'll be at least three flights. So we go to Hawaii oh. first, and then Guam, and then Palau. Okay. And a lot of the times we'll get hung up in Hawaii. So then it's like goes from three flights to like four or like six flights, depending. It's <laughs> like bopping around the Hawaiian Islands. <laughs> yeah, it's like we take these tiny flights, and they're like called island hoppers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they just like have to refuel between the islands. 
also will go to Palau, then we'll also collect samples and bring them back. Um, so like that small part of my year is spent in Palau, but a lot of my time is spent like in the lab, like processing samples. Mm-hmm. So I do genetics on corals. So like lots of extractions, but then also um, I do metabolomics. So I'm also measuring like coral energy reserves and like feeding and like things like that. Um, so yeah, the actual processing time is quite a lot in the lab. Mm. So then now I guess during COVID, what does it look like for you as a PhD student? It's pretty crazy because I mean, I'm one of the luckier ones, I think like, because I've been to Palau so many times, like I had a significant portion of my, um, like field research done. But I was supposed to go to Palau like the day they closed the borders. So like like, flights were booked and like I was like literally going to go to the airport and then four hours before they canceled my flight, which is fine because I'm sure I would still be in Palau right now on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So do you work with um, collaborators there or like how did the Palumbi Lab start working in Palau specifically? Yeah, so Steve, um, who's my advisor, Steve Plumby, um, did a lot of work in American Samoa and like some other places. And then he wanted to like scale it up from like a smaller place to a place like Palau, which has um, just a lot more like geographic area to explore. Mm-hmm. So um, we started a collaboration with local Palauans there. Uh, they have like a coral reef center. So it's been really cool. Like we work with um, like local PhDs and like master students um, from Palau, and they're all like involved like throughout the entire process. So like, we're at scuba diving or snorkeling with them and like we're writing the papers with them and like all of that stuff. Oh, awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Have you always been interested in corals and marine science or was that something that came later on in your science journey? Yeah, I was one of those like weird kids growing up that like I was really passionate about marine science from a young age. Um, And I feel like after a lot of like reflection or like in hindsight, like for me, like the defining moment was doing like a squid dissection in my fourth grade, like science class. Wow. I just fourth grade. Wow. That's so early. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. Um, And so I've always been really interested in like ocean science and conservation. And Mm -hmm. growing up, I got to go to the Caribbean and like snorkel on reefs. And I was literally like just on vacation. And so I was the only person in my family besides my little brother who like was afraid of the ocean who knew how to swim mm. so like a lot of the times I was out there by myself like for hours, <laughs> just like snorkeling and like enjoying the corals and stuff like that wow how did you even know to like do that like I feel like if I were on vacation and no one in my family was going to go snorkeling I would not even like know that that existed <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I mean, it helped that like I had learned about coral reefs before and it also helped that my parents were very supportive. So they were buying me like marine science textbooks and they like bought me my first like snorkel set. Like, (laughs) so they were always just very confused because like my mom's a lawyer and my dad is a corrections officer and like yeah, they had never even thought about like non-traditional um, like paths in like for careers. So they, they thought it was weird. I'm sure they thought I'd grow out of it, um, <laughs> but I didn't. And it made like going into college a lot easier too, because like I knew what I wanted to major in. I knew like, I was like very stubborn about like, I don't care what it is or like who it is I'm doing it with. Like I will be studying coral somehow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. so, yeah, I made it a lot easier in that way. Yeah. So how did you pick... Um, where you wanted to go to college. So like for those listening, Nia went to Harvard with me as well. (laughs) We were there at the same time, which was fun. And I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but it didn't seem to me like Harvard had like the most amazing marine science program. So I'm curious why you chose Harvard. 
Yeah. So I had also applied to like a lot of schools in the South. So like Virginia also has a really good like marine science program in Delaware and yeah, Duke. And um, honestly, so I, I grew up in New York and when it came down to it, um, like I was just like really scared, you know, to like live too far from home. Yeah. So, so um, I really didn't want to go like much further out of like a three hour radius. Like, you know, I wanted to be within yeah. driving distance and yeah, it made it pretty easy in that way. Also, I was excited about the idea of going to a liberal arts college like Harvard. Like um, the like name of our major was organismic and evolutionary biology. And I just thought that was so like cool and crazy and out there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm just excited to like get to learn a lot more about not just marine science, but like lots of other things. Um but it also meant that uh, I had to do a lot of research on my own time. So like mm -hmm. I, there were, there were like maybe two or three classes that were offered like throughout my whole four years that were about marine science. Um, so yeah, I think in a lot of ways you get like this great breadth of knowledge. Um, and I got to do like uh, nervous system projects and like, like I did a lot of like terrestrial and coral work uh, while I was at Harvard. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I did feel in a, in a lot of ways that it was a disadvantage, um, like when I was applying for PhD programs and I was like, you know, you have like a big name school, but like in a lot of ways you feel like you have less um, like accrued knowledge compared to someone else coming from a more specialized program. So hmm. definitely trade-offs. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about the research that you did at Harvard? Yeah, so I did a few projects. Um, my freshman year, I um, worked with sea anemones, and basically, I was like cutting them up, like in different, like different sort of ways, and looking at their regeneration. Um, and that was really fun. It was based in Cape Cod, so like it was just a beautiful place to be. Um, I also did a project on crickets, and that was the most out there project <laughs> that I did. <laughs> Um, and it was really cool. You know, I learned how to like do microscopy and like some genetics yeah. staining and stuff like that. But like in the back of my head, I was always thinking like, I will not be doing crickets for my senior thesis. <laughs> 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 um, and then for my senior thesis, I worked with Gonzalo Gerbet and that was on larval coral settlement and development. So I was just looking at like what happens to a uh, larval coral when they're probing like different substrates, like trying to find like the best place to land and like what goes into that process. Mm, very yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> so did you go right from Harvard to Stanford for your PhD? I, I took a gap year and honestly, I was so burnt out like after college, um, like for my senior thesis, I honestly, I think I was working more hours than I do in like my day-to-day, -day, like for my PhD, like I was just obsessed with doing that project. And by the time it came to graduate, I was just, I was so, so tired. Like I didn't even apply to uh, grad school programs um, yeah. my year. And um, I used that year, I like spent that year doing um, like marine science education. Mm. I worked at an aquarium and it was just really fun. That sounds awesome. What aquarium was it? Was it the New England aquarium or? No, it was the Maritime Aquarium. So it was in uh, Connecticut. Connecticut. Okay, cool. Yeah. So then what made you decide to go back and pursue a PhD? Yeah, I mean, I always knew I wanted to get a PhD. And okay. I had, like, the original plan was to go straight. Um, and then the gap year was like a serendipitous, like, nice reset. Yeah. Um, but it was hard. Like, it's really hard 
like, this is one of the frustrating things for me about academia is that like, if you take a little bit of a break, it's so hard to like get back into that mindset, you know, like you don't have access to the journals unless they're open access Mm -hmm. articles and like things like that. So it's really hard to stay like up to date, even in like a field, you know, you're interested in. Um, So the actual application process was pretty difficult um, because like I had to track down recommenders. Like I had to figure out how to put together the application, like when I was in a lab, like all of that sort of stuff. Um, But yeah, I mean, I knew I wanted to do a PhD and this time I knew I wanted it to be in California because I was like, okay, <laughs> I've been in the Northeast my whole life. I like want to go as far away as possible. <laughs> awesome. yes, I had a very similar <laughs> mentality. I was like, out of here. <laughs> yeah. So when you like look back on all of your science history, are there particular moments where that were particularly pivotal and like, you know, I, you mentioned the squid dissection, but were there other things where it sort of really solidified for you that this is what you wanted to do? Yeah, I think for me, um, my senior thesis was like a really like, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of things. It was really difficult. It was a struggle for sure, but it was also like confirming for me because I'd spent so many years thinking like, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to be a marine biologist. And I hadn't quite found like that project that um, like I was really passionate about and committed to. Um, So being able to do that project and getting my first taste of like, I guess, like the extreme obsessive side of like research um, really made me think like, this is something that I could do like for, for a long time. Mm -hmm. So when you were, I think you mentioned this, but I just, I forget when you were at Harvard, you didn't do any field work, right? It was just when you got to Stanford, you started doing field work or. Yeah. Yeah. I I started field work at Stanford. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. Is that something that you like really wanted and were looking for when you were looking at PhD programs? Yeah, for sure. I like that was what got me interested in marine biology, like as a little kid was the not the part like being inside, like reading the textbook, but thinking about like, oh, like one day I'll be out there and doing those things. Um, So I wanted that to play a really big role um, in my PhD. And, you know, studying something like corals, it's like, I mean, most labs spend some time out there like in the ocean. So it it wasn't hard finding a lab that did field work. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So what brought you to Stanford in particular? Was it mostly like the California thing or how did like how did you choose Steve and all of that? (laughs) Yeah, um, so I was set on working in a coral lab and I wanted to basically be on like I was I was basically just looking at California and like some other places along the East Coast. um, And that cuts out many, many universities. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a small sample size. Um, And what interested me about Stanford was like, it was purely uh, Steve's lab, because um, Mm -hmm. I I was really just looking for the best like research fit. Um, And it's interesting, because, you know, now that I've had like a lot of years, like between like that period, and now I like whenever I'm talking to students, I tell them like, when you're looking for a PhD lab, like there are more things besides (laughs) research fit that you should prioritize or at least consider, you know, and now I think like, you know, it's really important to make sure you have like a good mentor mentee match and that the lab environment is something that you gel with in addition to the research lab and just figuring out, you know, like how you value those relative things in your life. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of like how, would you recommend someone sort of figure out if a mentor is a good fit for them? Yeah, I mean, 
it's, it's hard because, you know, a lot of people, yourself included, when you're in this process are like, you're on your very best behavior, mm-hmm. but like the best places to start are like having a conversation with your potential mentor asking like, you know, how often are you around? Like, do you like to see people in lab or are you okay with like, you know, lots of different um, ways that a PhD could look and things like that. And like, what are your communication styles, but also talking with uh, grad students, like current grad students. And uh, if you have access to them, like Pat, like um, former grad students and things like that. Yeah. That's something that I like definitely didn't think about when I was going through interviews to, you know, I just felt like, I was like, Oh, wow. I really want this person to like me. And I would ask the grad students very sort of cursory questions of like, Oh, do you like it? And they'd be like, yeah. And I'd be like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's so hard because like, yeah, like you want them to like you, like, you know, you don't want to say the wrong thing and you're so focused on like, Oh, I just want to get into the program. You don't even ask yourself like, you know, like you ask yourself, like, do, do I deserve to be in this program, but not like, does this program deserve to have me as like, it's yeah. grad school, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Which is pretty huge, right? Particularly when you're thinking about like picking a mentor. I think also like picking a mentor is such like a foreign idea sometimes to people too, you know, like how is it that, you know, when somebody is a good fit, do you just feel it in your gut or do you just hope? What did you do? <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's, it's a lot of things. I mean, there, there's always an aspect of hope to it because, you know, you never know how you're going to react or like how someone else react, will react until you're like in a moment of adversity or like of struggle. And so, um, yeah, you, you can do all of your due diligence and like still like, you know, come up with, you know, hit bumps in the road and you have to like figure out how to navigate those things, whether it's with that PI or like with the, like leading on the lab or your cohort mates or things like that. And also feeling confident in knowing that, you know, you aren't just accepted into that lab, you're accepted into the program. And so like, whatever that looks like for you to make it work, like maybe that means switching labs or maybe that means taking time off or like all of those things are like totally valid and like understandable ways to deal with like whatever it is that you're, you're struggling through. So. Yeah. One thing that we've been talking about in our lab recently is this idea of like a mentorship network. So like you might have your PI, right? Who for students is like your primary mentor, but then identifying sort of the unmet needs that you still have and finding people who can be your mentors to sort of meet those needs is really nice. Yeah. I, I love that because an important thing for me to accept was like, no matter who your mentor is, they will not be the like be all end all, like, you know, they will not be everything for you. And, you know, that's no fault of like you or your mentor. So yeah, I think it's good that people get into the mindset of like, just knowing to look for other people and that, that that's okay. And that that's common. I love that. That is huge. I think, and that took me a long time to learn too. So yeah, Yeah. I love that you said that. That's great. So Nia, how do you take care of yourself, like mentally, physically, what sorts of things do you occupy your time with outside of science? Yeah. Um, so an important component to like my PhD personally has been like, I found an awesome therapist and like, I think it's great. (laughs) I think like, you know, it should be a totally normalized thing. And like, for me, like my first few years were really hard. Like, you know, I like developed a lot of anxiety and things like that. And so it's just been such a like, source of like, uh, like centering and like strength for me to do that. Um, but I also, uh, do a lot of like random stuff outside of my PhD. So I, up until I guess coronavirus, it's like, 
been postponed indefinitely, but um, I play the violin for the Paul Alto Philharmonic. And I do, um, like, I write a lot of, like, poetry and prose. I, I minored in English, so, um, yeah, I, like, literary, like, magazine publishing stuff on the side. And, yeah, I, like... I think it's so important for people to do stuff outside of their PhD. Like if you want to, there are some, I think there's a small population of people who like genuinely want to do their PhD from like, like Monday to Sunday, like sun, like sunrise to Sunday. That's totally fine. Like, but for the rest of us, it's, it helps to do other things. (laughs) How do the various identities that you hold influence how you've experienced science and like how you continue to experience science? Yeah. Okay. So I identify as a black woman, um, in science. And, uh, I mean, there are some very obvious ways that that has impacted me. Um, but I would say, um, being a woman was like my first sense of like this, like feeling of like otherness, like in science. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until really when I started doing, like when I, when I, started going to undergrad like where I really got that other piece to it like being like a black person in science and then it felt like way more isolating and like um like difficult like dealing with that aspect to it because you know in our major for example like there were three other like uh black um like people in our cohort Mm -hmm. and um I remember like my first research experience in undergrad, uh, which was like doing the sea anemone work in Cape Cod. I um, like was in a lab meeting and it was like a cross lab meeting. And I remember like raising my hand and like trying to ask the question of like the other person who was um, like giving a presentation and they just kept ignoring me the entire time. No. And like, I remember like, you know, not thinking anything about it until like the very end of the meeting um when like you know I was trying to introduce myself to the person and they were just totally ignoring me and it wasn't until like my PI went up to them and was like oh no this is Nia like she's in my lab she's from Harvard and then suddenly like you know she heard like the word Harvard and she was like oh I'm so sorry like I didn't you know and and it sucks because I think you know for a lot of like for people coming from underrepresented minorities there's this pressure to like be the best like not even just the best like two times at least better than like the next best person in order to like have someone uh, like value you in the way that you want them to. Um, And so, yeah, for sure, that was really difficult. I think um, it's really colored. I guess colored is an interesting word. to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, anyways, um, (laughs) it's just really impacted, like, you know, how I view myself, how I interact uh, in academia and like, Um, yeah, I think going into my PhD, um, I've never been more aware of like the color of my skin than like being in this program. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting because, so I'm the first like black, um, PhD student to like go through Hopkins, which is like one of the tracks within like Stanford's PhD program. And, um, like when I first got there, like people were saying, uh, like, kind of, like, whispering all these sorts of things, and, like, even before I'd met them, there was this perception of, like, how I would be, like, what, what my qualifications were, like, all of those sorts of things, um, so it, it was really difficult to navigate, and it really, um, like, set off the PhD to a very, like, tricky start, you know, so I've definitely learned over the last four years, and it's taken, like, a really long time, like, a lot of self-reflection to, um, like find my footing to like find power and like 
um, I don't know, acceptance like within myself, you know? So I, I pay a lot less attention to the things that people might be thinking of me and like what, what perception they might have of me, like when I walk into the room. Um, but you know, it takes, it takes a lot of, um, like self-confidence and like an air of, um, not caring. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find yourself like behaving differently than you would sort of want to in order to fit in? Like, does that feel like something that you need to do or? Um, I would say I, so I definitely do behave differently. Um, and it's less about like trying to fit in or not, and more about like my own comfort level. Okay. So, um, for me, like part of where my anxiety came from was just this idea that, uh, people expected me to fail. And so depending on like what room I'm in or like who I'm talking to, some people will say like me as the most extroverted person I've ever met or like, wow, <laughs> super quiet. <laughs> and so, you know, that that's gotten better over time just because I've, I've become more, um, secure and like what my contributions are and like, you know, what are the things that I bring to the table? But in the beginning, uh, yeah, I mean, giving a presentation like to a large audience, depending on like who that audience was filled with is just really hard. Yeah. And do you find that it's hard based off of sort of like the type of people on an individual basis or like if it's faculty versus like grad students kind of thing? Yeah, it's interesting um, because I've given some talks to like some like large audiences and it's been fine. I actually think the more I like know the people, the like more anxiety I used to feel. So like I could give a talk, like I could give a department talk um, and it would have 40 people in it. And I'd be like, I'm very aware of like how those 40 people like might already view me. And that like would impact how I, how confident I feel in myself. Yeah. So you mentioned that, you know, how like you think other people view you. And I'm, I'm curious what you think that is, like what you think other people's perceptions of you are. Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the people, obviously. I think anyone who knows me personally, like, you know, I think they know what I see myself to have. So, like, you know, they see me as a hardworking person, as like a committed person and a passionate person. Um, But people who, like, didn't know me, for example, like when I first came to Hopkins, you know, I had people, um, you know, asking whether or not I belonged and things like that. And, like, I think... Um, yeah, I just think people have their own preconceptions about, um, why people are where they are and like what they had to do to get there. Um, and at this point it doesn't bother me as much because like at a certain point you have to accept like people, some people will always think that and it's not okay, but like it shouldn't, uh, impact, you know, how I view myself. I'm just curious, has it ever discouraged you from taking an opportunity, you know, um, I don't know specifically, like, like in the past, I've gotten the, oh, well, you're the diversity candidate. So, you know, you're probably not as good as the rest of us. Has it ever discouraged you from taking opportunities or felt like maybe you didn't deserve it because maybe you were that person, even though you're not, obviously, but. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, I'm so sorry someone said that to you. That's pretty messed up. Um, (laughs) But also, so I've never turned down an opportunity or like shied away from an opportunity because I didn't think I deserved it. Um, but I also think, um, I, so, you know, I personally had to work through a lot of my own internalized, like perfectionism and things like that. So I growing up and I mean, this was true up until last year, probably even like 
if I don't get something and like, I could be applying for like a fellowship where two people will get it and like thousands of people applied and I'll still just, I would feel so bad, but like, I didn't get it. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like, I don't understand. Like, I feel like I'm qualified. And then you have to go through all of this, like negative self, like positive self-talk to remind yourself, like, no, you're qualified. Like this does not change like your own qualifications and like your own value and things like that. Yeah. And I feel like that takes a lot of courage, like on your part to like talk to yourself and tell yourself that you are valuable, that you are worthy. I don't know. I feel like that's something that as women or as people of color, it's are in science in general, it's difficult, you know, is you're comparing yourself to all these fabulous, intelligent scientists. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. Imposter syndrome is like real and it's even worse I think for people coming from underrepresented groups um and unfortunately at least my experience has been like if I don't say those things to myself like those positive things then I cannot just count on someone else you know to like I can't count a validation to come from someone else like it has to come from myself yeah yeah you mentioned at one point that um like coming to Stanford was when you sort of became most aware of like the way that you being black made other people potentially like treat you differently or just made you feel like that was the most salient time. And I'm wondering if you can articulate like what the difference was between like Harvard, which is a fairly similar sort of, you know, makeup of people, et cetera, versus like Stanford. Yeah. Um, I think in part, it's to do with the difference between like an undergraduate versus a graduate school experience. It's like an undergrad, you know, I still was one of the very few like people of color in any of my classes, but there's this idea that like, we're all here to learn. And like, there's an accepted notion that like, we don't know, like we don't know anything. And like, we know we're sponges, like soaking it all up. And so there's, there's like kind of that like camaraderie or like bond and like that understanding. And then I think with grad school, it just felt so different. And like, painful because there was this idea that like anything you didn't know it felt like 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 shame on you for not knowing that Mm. and you know that's not what grad school should be about and I don't think um I don't think a lot of people see it that way like you know grad school is also a time to learn like otherwise what's the point Mm -hmm. right like like (laughs) you don't have to like keep doing the same things that you already know over and over again (laughs) um but it was still that feeling of like suddenly it just switched from a collaborative to like a competitive environment. And um, that, I think that's when like, I really felt that difference, like that otherness at um, like in my program, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That, I'm sorry to hear that. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's gotten a lot better for sure. <laughs> good. Good. I'm yeah, glad. That's great. Yeah. I'm wondering, I feel like some of the other people that we've talked to um, on this podcast have talked about sort of like the importance of community and particularly like finding people who look like you have the same background as you have similar things as you. Um, and which like, frankly, there are not that many black graduate students at Stanford and in our program. And so I'm wondering if you could talk about like, how you have found a community and whether or not those things like particularly like the black graduate student association and things like that, if those are things that you lean on or if that has not like been quite as much of a uh, foundation for you. Yeah. So um, I, 
so I have been involved in like uh, some of those other um, organizations on campus. But for me, like I was always like it kind of felt like a double whammy because, you know, I was a person of color, but I was also like isolated, like in Monterey, so like an hour and a half from campus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's very different now that I live on campus. Plus with coronavirus, everyone is on Zoom anyways. Um, But over the last year, um, one PI at Miami, U Miami um, started a like black woman in like eco Evo and marine science group. And it's turned into like hundreds of people. Wow. And uh, it's just been really, she was, she actually was a postdoc in the lab, like right before I joined and like, boy, do I wish that I'd known that like <laughs> started her, her lab the year I was looking, but I wasn't looking at Florida. <laughs> so, that's my fault. Um, but it's just been really cool. Like we have like monthly meetings and I remember the first meetings, this was like, this was April of last year. And it was just a zoom call, like populated with like brown faces. And I was like, Oh my gosh, there's so many of us. And why is it that we're all like one or two people at these like spread out institutions, you know? Um, but like, it, it was just really powerful to look at it and think like, I'm not the only, I am the only one here, but I'm like not the only one everywhere else. And yeah, that's just been a really special. So what sort of advice would you give someone who's interested in marine biology? Yeah, I mean, I would, so firstly, I would say, don't be discouraged by like whatever part of the country you're in. Like you could be in Kansas or something and like still have access to like lots of things with marine biology. And I would say like the first place to start is like the internet and the library and like, I don't know, textbooks if you're into that. But (laughs) I would say like, if you're passionate about anything, because I meet a lot of people, um, like I, I meet a lot of adults who say, I was really into marine biology when I was a kid. And then like, I grew up and did something else. And I think there's so much pressure, you know, to go into like, the, the common paths. And even in marine science, you know, there's still that pressure to like go into academia and, you know, do the traditional thing. But um, I think my first bit of advice would be to say, like, just go out there and explore it and see what happens. And I guess another thing I would say, maybe this is, I guess, more general for grad school that I've learned um, is like, you should really appreciate every single accomplishment like that comes your way. And that might look different, you know, depending on the day, like maybe like you just published a paper and you should for sure celebrate that in like every aspect of like the <laughs> process. Like, <laughs> but um, maybe it's you weren't feeling that well. And like all you did was look at emails and respond to emails all day. Like that's still the best you could do that day. And I think it's like it's way better for your brain and like for your for your mental health to like award, reward yourself for what you did accomplish as opposed to like being upset about, you know, what you didn't accomplish. Um, yeah, I think this is kind of a weird one, but something that I've been thinking about lately is um, like the idea of giving, you know, however much you're able to like to give to others, but like no more than like what you're absolutely able to give because mm-hmm you know, there's a lot of pressure to like help other people, um, especially if you're coming from an underrepresented minority like background and there's that expectation to bring other people up. And I think that's beautiful, you know, but it's also a really heavy burden, especially, you know, depending on what you're personally dealing with. And so I just think it's a great space to prioritize your well-being, um, like while also doing like those other things that fuel, fuel you. 
Yeah, no, I think that's great advice. At one point, um, you were just talking about like going into academia and how there's more to marine science than just continuing on into academia. And so I was wondering if you could talk about like what sorts of careers are out there that aren't academia. And if you have one in mind that you're thinking of, if you could share with us. Yeah, I mean, I will say I'm I'm planning to do that traditional. (laughs) That's fair. I think, um, I mean, there's so much that you can do. Like, you know, I spent a year like working in an aquarium and there are a lot of people who are just passionate about marine science and education. And like, they spend their days like feeding seals and like getting little kids excited about hermit crabs and things like that. And I I think that's beautiful. Like it was, I was always excited every day I was there. Um, But there are like, you know, there's the nonprofit route. There's like the science communication route. So um, I have a friend who um, like is in media basically. And so she's involved in like producing different like marine science shows and like things like that. Um, There's like science writing. So like journalism Mm -hmm. and um, or just like giving the spotlight to like really cool science because like in academia, there's such a disconnect between the actual science and the um, public understanding of like what that science means and what it can, what it can do. Um, so that's a really important part to it as well. And like entirely different skill sets that you uh, can develop, like, you know, during a PhD or like, you don't even need a PhD to do. Um, and like, just as important and valuable. I feel like the answer to this question is no, but I'll just ask it anyways, just to be thorough. <laughs> Were there any times in your career so far where you've considered doing other things or was it always just like, Marine science. Yeah. So actually the answer is um, sort of yes. Okay. Like, you know, I always had marine science in the back of my head, but um, as I feel like with every person who likes animals, like you consider being a vet and I was, (laughs) I was considering that for a little bit. Um, And when I first started um, college and I know I was already pretty committed to marine science, but um, my dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And so I remember, which is like, um, a neurodegenerative disease. And, um, I remember like learning about that and thinking like, you know what, I'm going to switch to like neurodegenerative disease research. And I did that like for a few months, like, and it was, it was so complicated and difficult. And like, I learned that I was not passionate about it, though. I am passionate about my dad. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. You could be both. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, actually it's like, it's kind of scary when you realize, I mean, I'm sure I'm good at a bunch of other stuff, you know, but like when you realize like, oh no, like this is all I'm trained to do. And all I know are corals and oh man, like if this doesn't work out, it's going to be a major career shift. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when I did, um, I studied abroad during the summer after my freshman year and I did, um, one of the Duke organization for tropical studies classes. And so I just did like field biology for the summer and I came home and I was like, mom, dad, I'm going to be a field biologist. And they were like, what? (laughs) How are you going to use that for anything useful? Like what skills are you going to learn in order to like have any sort of productive career? Yeah. Here I am. (laughs) Making it work. (laughs) (laughs) so many skills though so many skills I think we just need to think about them in a different way yeah yeah Yeah, that's totally right I think even like we're technically in a creative field you know like we have to create things all the time and yet like we're all still stuck in like 
Like, I feel like applying that creativity outside of our research is hard. Like, figuring <laughs> out what else we can do with our skill set and with our lives and, you know, stuff yeah. like that. And yeah. we're all just basically entrepreneurs, like running yeah. own individual businesses. That is like me, myself, and I doing this yeah. project. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like people don't think about that when they're like, oh, I know how to do is like, you know, coral research or whatever. <laughs> like, you know how to manage projects, manage people, like do all of these things. It's useful. Deadlines, yeah. <laughs> so is there anything else that you want to say or like sort of end with? Okay, I would say one of the most important things I've learned during my PhD, and I think I've sort of said this like in so many words throughout the podcast episode, but like it's really important to figure out how you want to measure your own productivity and your own worth and like your own version of success because that looks so different depending on the person. And it takes a lot of self-confidence, you know, to accept like whatever the best version is of yourself rather than like someone else's best version of themselves and like, you know, set like your best version as your standard to shoot for. And that has like really given me so much freedom in terms of like how I interact with myself, but also like how I view my projects. Like this has been, it's interesting because this last year during coronavirus, I've been so focused on uh, health and other versions of productivity, but it's also been the most productive year of my like actual research. And I think it's because of yeah, that like ability to accept like, you know what, like my validation comes from myself. And like, even if someone tells me something like good about whatever I did, I, I think to myself, like, you know, I appreciate it, but like, it doesn't really matter that much to me. <laughs> like, Wow. You've reached That's like awesome. self-actualization. What is that vision of Nia that like, is what you are striving for. Yeah, I mean, for me, um, being able to enjoy the research that I'm doing and that has led to a pretty unconventional like last year. So for the first time I'm doing, well, first time in a while, I'm like not just doing coral work and I'm really enjoying those other projects. Hmm. And I've been uh, also just getting to enjoy um, like friends and family and enjoying a like clear distinction between like work life and like Mm -hmm. personal life. Um, And I also just get a lot of joy out of doing things like this, you know, talking with other people, um, like supporting people who were like, who like were in the place that I, who are currently in the place where I was like a few years ago and things Mm -hmm. like that. Um, But yeah, it's really just come down to me doing what I want to do and like, (laughs) not apologizing so much for it (laughs) and it's been great that's awesome (laughs) amazing so on that note if people listening wanted to reach out to you um how could they do that yeah so my twitter is nia sim walker so like s-y-m like symbiosis but also my last name is or my middle name is simone (laughs) oh cool um yeah I think that's probably the best place to go because I think it also my email and stuff um okay. I, my email is niasw at stanford.edu cool great and I can put all of that in the show notes so people can find it yeah awesome well thank you so much Nia this has been thank awesome you. you're great <laughs> amazing thank you for having me of course <laughs> Thank you again to Nia for being here and sharing your story with us. 
You can get in touch with Nia on Twitter at Nia Sim Walker and via her email, which is niasw at stanford.edu. And don't worry, we'll include both of these in the show notes as well. As always, please get in touch with us at roots to stem podcast at gmail.com or on our website at roots to stem podcast.com. If you're enjoying the show, please recommend our show to a friend and leave a rating and review on iTunes. Stay tuned for our next episode in two weeks. Bye. Bye.